Welcome to The Strange and Unusual, where we discuss the strange and unusual. This is episode 27 of our series, seeking out the weird, the unexplained, and the devious from around the world. I'm Roya. And I'm Casey. And today, we're going to be talking about Canada! I was about to try to sing Oh Canada, but instead, I just had Princess Diaries. Genovia, <laughs> the land I call my home. You know, I saw that for the first time in my life, like, last year. Really? Yeah, I'd never seen it. I don't know why, because it's, like, right up my alley, movie-wise. But I just had never seen it. <laughs> That's one of the ones that, like, a lot of my friends liked when we were in middle school i don't know when it whatever yeah, it came out all of my friends like like all of my friends like i don't know how i didn't see it like growing up <laughs> i love that movie. i still love that movie yeah i really enjoyed it too like i said it's like right up my my alley of that like rom-commy sort of oh the other day at work I was sitting there, and I was trying to stay awake. And do you know what I put on? My most favorite movie? I put on Sleepless in Seattle. (laughs) I watched uh, Crazy Stupid Love while I was writing my notes this morning. That's a good one. Yeah, it's probably on a short list of, like, my favorite rom-com-y sort of movies. Well, have you seen Sleepless in Seattle? It's been a while, but yes, I have. I love that movie. I love Tom Hanks. That's the problem. Yeah. I liked um, You've Got Mail. Oh, that one's a good one, too. One of my favorite scenes at Sleepless in Seattle is when they're walking down the street and Tom Hanks' character is talking because he hasn't actually been out in the dating field for a while. And his his friend's telling him they like... uh, Something and a cute butt. And he's like, butt? You mean like he has the cutest butt? Yeah, something like that. And Tom Hanks stops and pulls up his jacket and goes, well, do I have a cute butt? And his friend goes, yeah, it's all right. (laughs) That's one of my favorite parts. You clearly do not think that's funny. (laughs) I guess he had to be there. Yeah, I'm sure it's funnier in context. Like I said, I have not seen that movie in a long time, and I don't think I've seen it like frequent frequently enough to remember it well. Well, we should watch it. Okay. What are you talking about today? <laughs> <laughs> what are we What are we doing here? I don't know. I'm talking about Tom Hanks, evidently. Um, I am going to be doing a true crime, because that's my favorite to do, clearly. Um, and I'm going to be talking about Robert Pickton. Oh, boy. Are you familiar? Slightly. Mm. I don't I don't know a lot, but I know it's bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, you know it's bad when there's a Criminal Minds episode loosely based on the serial killer. I'm not the talking two, about it's anything. It's a two-episode arc. Is that the one with um, Reed and he gets in that cabin or some no. shit? Okay. No. 
do you know i don't know i vaguely remember that happening yeah and the guy from dawson's creek was there yeah and he gets read addicted to heroin yeah 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 that's the yeah. weirdest fucking thing weirdest episode oh man i just remembered a case i was thinking about doing for the u.s when we mentioned heroin Okay, well, I'm going to be talking about <laughs> the Lost Franklin Expedition. I have no idea. At least based really? off of that alone, I don't know what it is. So. I'm a little surprised, but yes, it's pretty good. Well, I, I mean, it's not good. It's, it's bad. But, you <laughs> it's know. bad. I mean, if it was good, it probably wouldn't be on this podcast. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> and it probably wouldn't be called the Lost Expedition. It would probably be called The Heroic Return of an Expedition. (laughs) The Brilliant Recovery of the Franklin Expedition. That's right. Well, let's get this over with. Hurt me. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) You know what I mean. Baby. (laughs) Baby. So, on February 5th of 2002, the police in British Columbia executed a search warrant for illegal firearms seen at the Picton Farm. But they would find so much more. Ooh. Robert William Willie Picton and his brother David Picton bought the pig farm and after some time let it fall into disrepair and neglect. And the brothers registered it as a nonprofit charity in 1996 with easily the most horrifying name. Like the kind of name you know bad things are going to happen if you go to a place with this name. Mm-hmm. The Piggy Palace Good Times Society. Nope. I'm going to nope right out of there. Thanks. In like 90s, like, okay, in the 20s. All right. You know. Good Times Society, I could kind of let that slide. Thanks, Roxy. <laughs> that was delicious. <laughs> but in 1996, anything with Good Times Society, I'm just going to nope. Like, yep. that's that's enough. <laughs> Thank you. I know that That's nothing... going to be a no from me, dog. <laughs> I know that nothing good is going to happen at this place. <laughs> Thank you for saving me the time checking yep. it out myself. So they basically claimed that they were going to hold charity events, uh, functions, shows, dances, and exhibitions on behalf of nonprofit organizations or groups like, you know, local or youth sports teams that needed to raise money, things like that. Mm-hmm. That seems, that seems uh, like a, a noble thing to do. Yeah, I think it started off noble. Um, and then very quickly spiraled. So they converted a slaughterhouse because nothing gets you in the dancing spirit like a slaughterhouse. Oh my god. Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> and they turned that into a gathering place that often featured exorbitant amounts of cocaine and yes. sex workers driven in from the local or from the nearby Vancouver. Noble. Noble cause. <laughs> Um, wild raves and just insane parties went down at the property for the next couple of years. Okay. In March of 1997, 
Robert Picton was charged with the attempted murder when he stabbed Wendy Lynn Essetter several times during an altercation. She had informed the police that Picton had handcuffed her, but she had fought him off and disarmed him and then stabbed him with his own knife. Okay. Just attempted, though. Yeah. Then, uh-huh. then, kind of the most nightmarish scenario that I could think of after surviving a situation like this happened. They both get taken to the hospital. Uh-huh. The same hospital. No. Just a couple of rooms away from one another. No. No. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and they treated their injuries and found a key in Robert Picton's pocket that uncuffed the handcuff that was still attached to Wendy's wrist. (sighs) Confirming that he definitely had intended on handcuffing her. Yeah. And by the use of actual police handcuffs in the U.S., he would be in some amount of trouble for just owning those. But I don't know in Canada if the same rules apply. Right. Um, let's see. So he was released on a $2,000 Canadian dollar bond. And the charge was dismissed. No. Of course it is. In January of 1998. Because Wendy, the victim, had a drug addiction. And the prosecutors believed that she would be too unstable for her testimony to secure a conviction against him. I hate this. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Um, A few months later, city officials sued the Pictons for violating zoning ordinances and neglecting the agriculture and having a, quote, altered a large er, and having quote altered a large farm building on their land for the purpose of holding dances concerts and other recreations that they were not zoned that's fair (laughs) the pictons ignored the legal pressure and had a new year's eve party in 1998 as and as a result the city banned future parties from happening on the premises the Piggy Palace Good Times Society's <laughs> nonprofit status was then removed the following year. Okay. No more cocaine parties. And oddly enough, everything I was finding was saying that Robert Pickton didn't actually do any of the cocaine. He did not take any drugs or was never under the influence of anything. Um, but he was just kind of odd and yeah. off. And I mean... Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> you name some place the Good Time Piggy Palace, and <laughs> that somehow made it worse. The Good Time <laughs> Piggy Palace Society. <laughs> yeah. Nope. I don't like it. An employee on the farm named Bill Hiscox paused for Casey's <laughs> inevitable laughter. <laughs> Shut up. Go ahead. I literally wrote that in my notes. (laughs) I believe you. Um, Well, Bill noticed (laughs) that over the three years that he had worked on the property, he had seen a lot of women come to the property, but not as many leave. Nobody ever goes in. Nobody Nobody ever ever comes comes out. out. (laughs) 
<laughs> Except for they do go in. They just don't come back out. Yeah. Um, so the police, like I said, opened the episode with, the police came on a illegal firearm search on February 6th. Both of the brothers were arrested. And yes. a second warrant was granted when the police found some treble- troubling evidence on the property at the farmhouse. Uh, so there was like a farm, a main farmhouse that um, David Pickton lived in, and mm-hmm. then Robert Pickton lived in this like uh, mobile home on the property. So they found the incriminating evidence in Robert's mobile home. Not in okay. the main house that David and his, I think his wife lived in. And they were wanting to get rid of the farm, if I remember correctly. Like, they, it wasn't making them money. That's why they tried this, like, nonprofit thing. And they were ready to get rid of it. Robert wanted to keep it for reasons well, yeah. that are about to become evident. His, it's his piggy party palace. All right, I'm just going to put it in here because that's where it makes sense. And that's why I was like, where's my thing? Um, like I said before, the so there was like the main house and the mobile home and the mysterious items appeared in the mobile home and not in the main house from what I was reading. And so the brothers were arrested and then the second warrant was granted because of what they found in the mobile home. Mm-hmm. So some of the things that they found in the mobile home were things like driver's licenses and IDs that did not belong to Willie Pickton. Uh, they belonged to missing women and, oh. um, and an inhaler that um, was not his, that belonged to another person. One of the victims... And she was, from what I've read, like a severe asthmatic and would not have just like left her inhaler just lying around somewhere. Right. She would have taken it with her. So the fact that it was left behind was pretty damning that she did not leave in a good situation. Or at all. Yeah, or at all. And so um, Robert Picton was charged on the weapons offenses. Um, mm-hmm. But both brothers were released, and Robert because of was. Of course, they were. Robert was kept under surveillance, though. Oh, okay. So they know that something's going on, but they just have to get all their ducks in a row before they make a move. On February twenty second, Robert was arrested and charged with two counts of first degree murder. That would start a downpour of charges. So, okay. on February 22nd, he was charged with the deaths of Serena Abbotsway and Mona Wilson. On April 2nd, he had three more charges of Jacqueline McDonald, uh, Diane Rock, and Heather Bottomley. On April 9th, he had one charge for Andrea Jonesbury, followed very closely by one for Brenda Wolfe. September 20th, there were four more charges. Georgiana Papin, or Papin, uh, Patricia Johnson, Helen Hallmark, and Jennifer Freminger. Freminger. Okay. On October 3rd, there were four more charges. Heather Chinook, Tanya Hulk, 
Sherry Irving, and Inga Hall. And then on May 26, 2005, 12 more charges were placed on Robert Pickton for Kara Ellis, Andrea Borhaven, Deborah Lynn Jones, Marnie Frey, Tiffany Drew, Carrie Kosky, Sarah DeVry, Cynthia Phelps, An Angela Jardin, Wendy Crawford, Diana Melnick, and a Jane Doe. Wait a minute. How many was that? 27. Jesus Christ. Okay. I was trying to keep track. Yeah. That was a lot of names. It is a lot of names. Um, the farm would be would continue to be worked for evidence, and the investigation is estimated to have cost $70 million by the end of 2003. Oh, wow. That's no joke. Yeah. And now, remember Wendy Lynn Elster from back in 1997? The woman yeah. who fought off Picton, stabbed him with his own knife? Yeah, yeah. Well, the police took his boots and clothing when they took him in to the hospital and everything because, you know, they thought this was going to go to trial and it should have gone to trial. Spoiler yeah. alert. Yeah. So, as maybe, I know you and I know, but maybe our <laughs> listeners don't know, there are millions of untested DNA or undone DNA tests in the United States right now. Mm -hmm. Millions for rape tests, for all wide variety of things. Just millions that have not ever actually gone through the testing. Because, unlike what they show on TV, DNA testing takes a lot more time and a lot more energy. It's not just putting a Q-tip into a machine and then it pops out a result from CODIS. Mm -hmm. Sometimes these can go years without you know the person who perpetrated the attack putting their DNA into anything. Maybe never. Mm. And then on top of it, you could also have situations like Golden State Killer, where it's someone who is related to that person, does one of these, like, 23andMe, or something like that, that, you know, kind of snowballs into finding, oh, wait a second, this person has these, you know, alleles in common with this person, with this murderer, so let's go look at their family and see, okay, who falls into that range? Who's the right age? Who's in the right area? Who lived in this area at the time? And that's how you get people like Golden State Killer getting caught. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the sad thing is that DNA tests also just didn't get done in 97 either. Because if they had been which they did in 2004, they would have found the DNA of two missing women on his boots. Oh, well then. That's good. That's that kind of like Ken and Barbie killer having a victim in their house like when the police should have came and did Yeah. Like that's just, it's so frustrating when, when shit like that happens. Yeah. I, I am upset. And <laughs> we're going to further upset you. Oh, lovely. Let's go. Let's do it. In 1998, the Vancouver um, police detective Lorimer Shearher. Good job. Shinher. You tried. 
there's a lot of R's in the name, man. I don't know. Um, anyway, they learned that a call was made on a tip hotline saying that they should go look at Picton's farm for the missing women. But there was not sufficient evidence at the time to get any actual momentum to go and, you know, mess up somebody's life on a murder well, allegation. But if they had just checked the fucking boots, they might have reason, you know, to go. And then in 1999, <laughs> uh -huh. the Canadian police received another tip saying Picton had a freezer full of human flesh on his farm. Oh, okay. The police interviewed Picton. He denied the allegations and gave them full consent to come out and check out the farm. But they just never did. Okay. Thanks, I hate it. So, the trial began on January 30th, 2006, where Picton pled not guilty to the 27 charges. One of the counts was rejected by the presiding judge due to insufficient evidence just out of the gate. Like, you don't have a case here. Sorry. Um, and then on August 9th, the judge, Justice Williams, decided to split the charges into two groups one of six that had a increased amount of evidence and proof, and then the other 20 um, in another case in an effort to not burden the jury too much, as well as to avoid a mistrial by having just throwing too much evidence out. So he was right. basically saying that if we were to do all 27 or 26 murders in this one trial, that could take two years, and that's not fair to this jury who wants to just, like, have a life. You know. You know. And I know that there that's something that um, the prosecution will sometimes try to do, too, to split up the, the cases where if one falls through, like um, Ted Bundy, as an example, they did one, one set of the trial in one state and then when that confirmed that they were good there, they didn't necessarily need to do the other states. I think that they still did uh, Florida. Florida was the one where he was caught. Yeah. Um, and then there was one in Colorado that he escaped from. Mm -hmm. And um, so basically he's murdered people in like four states. Murdered people in Washington, Oregon, in Colorado, and in Florida that we know of for Ted Bundy as an example. So using it this way is a way to avoid you know, double jeopardy. You can't be tried for the same thing, for the same exact case Multiple you are found times. innocent for. Yeah. But you can be tried for these other <laughs> murders of these different people. Yeah, it increases your likelihood of getting a result. Yeah. Yeah. And and so you'll see it when people have done murders that are split over states where they'll have one state do the trial and if that falls through then the other state will say okay well now you have to come do a trial here. Mm -hmm. And then if that falls through you know and so on. One of them is finally going to come back as <laughs> guilty if the person has committed murders in five states. You hope. More than likely. Especially with the amount of evidence that was here and in Bundy's case. Yes. But he also wanted to avoid a mistrial by, you know, 
if you have the jury on a jury for that long, things are going to get out. People are going to talk. Like, they're going to want to reach out to their family and loved ones, like, it's their right to. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, avoiding a mistrial by someone not being able to go home to their family, say this thing, and then that thing gets to the press, and then the press isn't supposed to have it yet because Canada's media bans, you know, so it's a whole big thing. And so, like, I actually kind of led into this really well. Huh, all right, go me. <laughs> go you. Um, as we talked about in the last, can- the last, the last Canada episode. <laughs> Canada. <laughs> the Canada episode, uh, which was hearkening back all the way to our roots of episode two. Where I horrified yep. Casey with the Ken of Barbie killers. Yep. Canada has a publication ban on murder cases to avoid jury contamination and the possibility of mistrials due to uh, like public figures voicing their opinions and things like that. So basically, the media doesn't get any information about the case until the day the case is going to trial. Like, to the main actual public trial. Yeah, and I don't hate that. I don't either. Um, and I was one of the things I mentioned. I was like, like public figures voicing their opinions, such as President Nixon saying Charles Manson was clearly guilty on TV during the murder investigation of the Manson family. That almost ruined everything that the prosecution had done up until that point because, like, you're watching the news and the president of the U.S. is even saying this guy's guilty. Like, you're a jury watching that. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, like... Not that Nixon uh, was wrong about that, but... Like, I, I, God, I was just watching... I started to watch a um, documentary on... God, what was his name? Scott Peterson. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's really... That case... That, that case was very... Really interesting. Because I listened to a really good podcast about that, too. And about how, like, things were twisted. Mm-hmm. And because, there, I mean, there's no media ban, people were allowed to speculate the way they wanted to. Oh, yeah. And that like Nancy very well Grace, I mean, may have colored up. the way the jury, you know, saw him. Yeah. And yeah, I agree. I think that's I think that that's the way it should be done. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. But you know, we never get something like that in the U.S. because of freedom of speech and like, freedom of press. Yeah, know. we're not. We're just. It makes a lot of sense. And this is again one of those conversations of like, could the founding fathers have ever expected <laughs> social media yeah. and television and these sorts of things to you know. It'd be a lot easier to do a trial when, you know, you have to wait for papers to be printed and for information to get out or radio, you know? Yeah. But even then, like, we're talking about 1776, the, the printing press is just, like, the hot new thing. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Benny Franks. <laughs> yeah. Um, but on January 22nd of 2007... The Canadian public finally started hearing the details of this case. Um, and so some of the evidence and things that were brown, the were brown. I just put two words together that I was looking at. Uh, things that were found or brought as evidence 
were, and spoiler alert, some of these are pretty rough. Um, so they found night vision goggles. I'm already done. <laughs> they found two pairs of faux fur lined handcuffs, a syringe okay. with three milliliters of blue liquid. Okay. Spanish fly. What? The aphrodisiac. Okay. Um, boxes of 357 Magnum ammunition. Nope. A loaded 22 revolver with a dildo over the barrel with one round fired. And there was uh, DNA evidence of both Robert oh Picton God. and one of the victims on the dildo. Oh no. Oh no. A videotape of Picton's friend, Scott Chubb. Pause for Casey's giggles. (laughs) Okay, no, this is the part where it's really dark, and that's all you're going to get from me. Um, He said that Picton told him that the best way to kill a female heroin addict was to inject her with windshield wiper fluid. Which is probably what was in that that syringe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, lovely. A second tape was played where an associate named Andrew Bellwood said Picton mentioned killing sex workers by handcuffing and strangling them, then bleeding them, oh, and gutting them and feeding them to his pigs. The pigs. Okay. The pigs. Remember <laughs> how this is a pig farm? <laughs> yeah. Hmm. I don't like it. Um, there were also photos of the garbage can in the slaughterhouse, which held some remains of Mona Wilson. On epi- um, episode... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Way to go. I just short-circuited. I saw an episode on a tab on my, on my browser to set episode... On episode 9th. <laughs> There you go. On December 9th, 2007, the jury returned a verdict that Picton was not guilty on six counts of first-degree murder, but instead was guilty on six counts of second-degree murder. Wait a minute. Is that like the U.S. where the second is not as bad as the first? Correct. Okay, why? They just didn't think he was guilty a lot of people attribute this to the fact that the majority of the victims were sex workers and oh. are seen as less dead. Less, yeah. Less than human. And so that's one idea. Another idea is that, you know, he must have been on narcotics despite everyone saying that he never did any kind of drugs. Um, that he must be mentally unstable to have done all of these crimes. Blah, 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 blah. Basically... No one believed that he was guilty of first-degree murder because they were sex workers. Like, let's call it what it is. Yeah. However, the highlight of this is, uh, so second-degree murder comes with a life sentence with no chance of parole for between 10 to 25 years. And that is up to the judge's discretion on if it's 10, 15, 20, 25, however long. And after reading the 18 victim impact statements 
the judge, James Williams, sentenced Picton to the maximum life with no parole for 25. Which is the same thing he would have gotten for a first-degree murder charge. Well, that's good. Yeah. Ish. I mean, it's as good as it could have been, given the circumstances. So all of this is pretty horrifying, right? A minimum of 27 people that have died. 27 women who lost their lives that were unfortunately, you know, addicted to drugs and were, you know, brought there under their own free will, but with the idea that it was going to be something much different than what it ended up being. Now what are you going to do to me? I have to remind you that there wasn't much of any bodies found on the property. Right, because of the pigs. Some believe that the bodies were fed to the pigs. But there is a concern that the bodies may have been sent to the rendering plants where the offal from the pigs were sent. Meaning that they could have been processed into beauty products or other things like dog food, um, anything, really. And there's even a chance that they may have been butchered with the pigs. That's what I was thinking. And processed as meat. Mm-hmm. And people ate them. Luckily, no meat was sold commercially from the Picton farm because they did not have a license to sell. But they were known to give meat away to friends, neighbors, relatives, things like that. Nothing has been confirmed about this, but the provincial health officer, Perry Kendall, did believe that there was a strong possibility it happened and went public with it and urged anybody who thought they could have had pork products from the Picton farm to just throw it away. Like, just get rid of it because you don't know what it could be. Or anything like that. Nothing was ever reported back to them to get tested or anything like that. So either nothing was found or no one turned it out. But the final note I have is as of 2015, the city owns the land still. And all of the buildings on the property, except for a small barn, have been demolished. Mm. Um, And I did read that, unfortunately, uh, well... Robert Picton is eligible for parole in 2032, and um, he has had multiple appeals shot down already. Um, They're not interested in hearing what he has to say about the case, from what it sounds like. Um, But there was some unfortunate kind of mishandling of some of the uh, evidence and, like, remains and stuff, where, like, some evidence got destroyed without the families being notified, which is really shitty. Yeah. And, you know, they weren't notified that it was going to be done where they could see if there was anything that they wanted uh, to remember their loved ones by or anything that they felt that they needed to keep um, on the off chance that, you know, his parole does come up where they could come up and say, you know, like, here are the, you know, 18... IDs that were on the property that aren't right. yours because these are all women and they're not you. How do you explain this? Yeah. One person forgetting their license. Even even five. You're throwing like crazy rave parties. Alright, five people forget their license. Great. What are the chances that those five people all happen to just disappear too? 
Yeah, that's what like, mine, <laughs> like, okay, you might have one or two. You might say, hey, look, this bitch just loved her shit here. But that's a lot. Yeah. And what I remember, I couldn't find um, the episode, because I've watched a couple of documentaries that did an episode about uh, Robert Picton. And there's always, like, there's women's clothing left behind. There's um, gunshot uh, bullet holes in the mobile home. I couldn't find a ton of detail like they, they had in the episodes, but I couldn't find the episodes to watch to refresh myself. Um, but there's, there is a, a Criminal Minds 2 episode arc that's loosely based on this idea um, that mm-hmm. gets into the like less dead because the person is preying on um, homeless people and yeah. um, sex workers, drug addicts, things like that. And it's taking them to a pig farm and then having them uh, killed in order to like experiment with their spinal fluid and stem cells. And, um, the, the way they find out how many people have been on this farm is basically like find a big box of shoes, um, like Holocaust style. And, uh, they figure out there's like this many people who have been here based on how many pairs of shoes or individual shoes that were out there. So it's kind of a similar idea as with the license plates or license plates, the driver's licenses and IDs of like, even though we can't have the bodies, we don't have the bodies. We don't have all of the bodies. We have their IDs and we have these, you know, three people's remains found on the property and these four people's DNA and then all of these licenses. So, yeah, it's safe to assume that these licenses don't belong to living people anymore. Yeah. Well, thanks. I hated that. Hey, at least it wasn't freaking Carlo Homolka getting away with murder. That's fair. I hated her too. Yeah, a lot of people do. Well, hey. <laughs> uh, you want to hear... Uh, something else (laughs) something different maybe that's still got some death but not as gross anyway i because i can tell you that story if you're interested (laughs) yeah go for it let's go i'm i'm really upset by this and he better not get parole i'm just saying it i don't think he will and I want to say, I mean, technically this story takes place when Canada was still just like British North America-ish. Uh, but Canada was expanded because of the search that took place for this. And Parks Canada had a lot to do with the later discoveries. So I maintain that this counts. Okay. So our story begins with John Franklin, who is, as much as I tried to find, No relation to Benjamin Franklin. That's disappointing. I searched really hard, but the problem is that Benjamin Franklin's brother was also named John Franklin. And so everything that I was like, is John Franklin related to Benjamin Franklin? And it was like, yes, it was his brother. And I was like, no, that's not him. (laughs) 
the other John. Uh, so he was born April 16th, 1786 with big Aries energy in uh, Silsby, Lincolnshire in England. His father was Willingham Franklin and his mother was Hannah Weeks. And John was the ninth of 12 fucking children. Wow. Willingham was a merchant who was able to provide a comfortable life for his family and hoped that John would take up a career in the church. John, however, at 10 years old, saw the ocean for the first time and fell in love. So his dad finally... Sorry. <laughs> his dad finally softens to the idea and he sends him on a trial voyage with a merchant ship when he's like 12. And John is like, this is me. I'm doing this forever. <laughs> Joins the Royal Navy in March of 1800 when he's 14 years old with his father securing him an appointment on the HMS Polyphemus. That's a word. Have you ever, yeah. Have you ever watched the movie Master and Commander? No. Highly recommended. It's got uh, Paul Bettany and Russell Crowe. And uh, you see these types of jobs that the young men would have to deal with. Um, Often these ranks could be just boy followed by a class. Like boy first class. Yeah. Boy third class. Um, And by my understanding, they also were able to fill roles of cadets, powder boys, midshipmen. And these young men... um, her training to become valued members of the crew and officers later and that sort of thing. So in the movie, you kind of, you see a lot of kids on the boat and what they do. Anyway, Franklin joins the Navy in the midst of the war of the second coalition, uh, which is basically the French go, ah, fuck it. And then everybody's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And that's my description of the second coalition. (laughs) (laughs) He experiences his first battle at the Battle of Copenhagen under Lord Nelson. The following year, he serves as a midshipman on the HMS Investigator under leadership of his cousin, Matthew Flinders. And they were sent to chart the coast of Australia. With Flinders' help and guidance over the two-year voyage, Franklin has become, at this point, a skilled navigator and surveyor. He goes on to serve at the War of 1812 and fought in the Battle of New Orleans, leading a party that tried and failed to capture the city. Uh, But he did manage to land a sweet, sweet promotion to lieutenant. And then in 1818, he received his first command. Captain David Buchanan would lead an Arctic expedition towards the North Pole to find the Northwest Passage. The HMS Trent would be captained by Franklin and the HMS Dorothea would be captained by Buchanan. So how much do you know about the Northwest Passage? Not much. I mean, there's not a whole lot to know. So the people had been searching. (laughs) No, I mean, I mean, there's not much to tell you. Um, People had been searching for this passage to reach Asia from Europe since about the 1500s. It's been compared to like an arms race or a cold war in terms of the competition to find the passage. So everyone wanted to be the one to control those waters that would be the direct route from northern Atlantic countries to the Pacific Ocean, because that meant money. Um, and you could avoid risking the lengthy and dangerous trips around Cape Horn in South America or the Cape of Good Hope in Africa. So people had been investigating and researching this for a long time. There had been some theorizing that the temperature of the waters in the Arctic would 
be increased between the Arctic Circle and the North Pole. That doesn't make a lot of sense when I say it. No. <laughs> and, and it was debunked. But understanding that these people didn't have the scientific equipment and understanding that we have today, let me explain. The thought was that the ice in the ocean only formed when it was in proximity to land, which is not true, but they really thought it was. And then, uh, so if there was no land near the North Pole, there couldn't be any ice formation. They also considered that since there is a perpetual sun during the Arctic summer, it would melt all the ice. <laughs> and the migration patterns of certain types of animals suggested that the polar region was hospitable place for them to be and live. Anyway, the idea was uh, that once the ship broke through the initial ice sheet north of Spitzenberg in northern Norway, they would be able to make it through the frozen waters without a problem. Before they even set off, the Trent was leaking, but they couldn't figure out from where. So the pumps were just being worked constantly. And this ain't no automatic pumping system you see today. This was a man-powered <laughs> pumping system, which sounds dirtier coming out of my mouth than it looked on the page. <laughs> Moving on. So the, the expedition... Good time, man-pumping... <laughs> <laughs> man-powered pumping piggy pals so good they <laughs> the good time society uh so they try to recruit these sailors from shetland where they're uh intending to disembark from but no one wants to sign up because nobody wants to work on a leaking ship and so waterlogged and shorthanded the trent still goes the crew has a tremendous amount of pressure put on them because they not only have to man these pumps, but someone needed to run the boat too. And some even died from exhaustion. It didn't go well. Yeah, it does not sound like it went well. <laughs> Between 1819 and 1822, Franklin gets his own expedition to the Arctic in the area of the Coppermine River in northwestern part of Canada. He conducted this overland expedition from western shore of Hudson, Hudson's Bay to the Arctic Ocean. Uh, and he surveyed uh, part of the coast from the East Coppermine River. This also didn't go well. He lost 11 of his 20 men. Most of them starved to death. But there is also at least one murder. And there are suggestions of cannibalism. Yeah, I the mean, survivors, if starving. The survivors were forced to eat lichen and even attempted to eat their own leather boots. Because of this... Okay, I have heard of this. Franklin became known as the man who ate his boots. Despite this rocky expedition, Franklin receives a hero's welcome when he comes back to England in 1823, and he published the narrative of a journey to the shores of the Polar Sea in the years 1819, 20, 21, and 22, because that's not a lengthy-ass title. <laughs> the same year he marries Eleanor Anne Porden and they have a daughter in 1824 February 1825 he's back out to go to the Arctic again and only a week after he uh, embarks on this journey his wife dies of tuberculosis this part I found really sad he had no way of knowing about this and he kept writing letters to her oh. faithfully until April when he finally learned of her death through a newspaper 
But from 25 to 27, he led a party that explored North American coast westward of the mouth of the Mackenzie River to Point Beachy, which is not Beachy, in what is now Alaska. In this expedition, uh, which multiple teams of explorers added to the knowledge of uh, about 1,200 miles of the northwest coastline, uh, then Franklin wrote when he got home, the narrative of the second expedition to the shores of the Polar Sea in the years 1825, 1826, and 1827. There's something about this man writing books that got him laid because that November he married his dead wife's friend, Jane Griffin, who was a well-respected woman and also a seasoned traveler. She's important later. On April 29th, 1829, which is kind of hard to say, uh, he was knighted, by King George IV, and that same year, he was awarded the first gold medal of the Society de Geographie, that was fun to say, of France. <laughs> he put on some weight while he was on land, probably to compensate for all those near-death starving experiences, and then he went on to serve as the governor of Van Diemen's Land, now Tasmania, from 1836 to 1843. There's even a town in Tasmania today called Franklin. This didn't go well for him either. Maybe Franklin needs to just stop <laughs> with expeditions. There was some Maybe he's political cursed. political backstabbing that went on when he was the governor. And so he returned to London when he was, oh gosh, I think it was like 59. It was June of 1944. He learns of the Admiralty's desire to head back to the Arctic. He is desperate at this point to get the commission and determined to repair his reputation after what happened with that political mumbo jumbo in Australia. So he's ready to go back and uh, to what made him a hero exploring the Arctic. His wife, Jane, an incredible woman, as I said, wanted to help him rehabilitate his image according to the National Geographic. Uh, she even lobbied and begged for him to be sent on one last expedition. And she knew a lot of people in the Admiralty because of her station. So she had a lot of sort of weight in that regard. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm setting you up for the, for the, the worst. Uh, meanwhile, <laughs> Sir John I Barrow figured. was the second secretary of the Admiralty from 1804 to 1845. According to Martin Sandler in his book Resolute, Barrow only reluctantly agreed to let the eager 59-year-old Franklin lead the expedition after five others had either declined or were ruled out. Oh. That's how in the shitter this guy's reputation was. Well, I mean, it's not only that. <laughs> he's also, like, how Horribly old? cursed. Well, and how old at this point? <laughs> yes. Yeah, see, like, so... That's just a liability at that point. Unless he's, you know, like a, a se super seasoned captain or something. Right. Uh, and so the idea is that he went on these four other or three other Arctic um, explorations. And so he had that experience. And that's what he kept trying to sell was, look, I came back a hero. I, I mapped these areas. Yeah, and how I can long do this. ago? <laughs> right. So. How old were uh, you when you did these experiences? <laughs> so Captain James Fitzjames, which is also fun to say, was Barrow's <laughs> third choice. Um, but he was rejected by the Admiralty due to his youth. Oh. He got command of the first ship, the HMS Erebus. Captain Francis Crozier, 
um, also on Barrow's list of potential leaders, uh, ousted because he was Irish, oh, good. Command- commanded the second ship, the HMS Terror. Franklin. Terror? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why Don't you want to get on that boat? Why would you name a... It's a warship. Okay. Fine. Yeah, they're both warships, so it, it made sense in that regard. I still uh, Franklin... I still don't think like that just seems like you're putting some bad juju. <laughs> like you believe in like ship names being like bad luck kind of thing. Yeah. I think going on a ship called the Terror is yeah. probably <laughs> not great luck. So Franklin would be overseeing this expedition, but he's not captaining the ships. This is what would be known as the Lost Franklin Expedition. So, these two ships. Let me set this up because I want you to think of the Titanic. Are you ready? Okay. These two ships are both modern marvels of their day. They had been fitted with steam engine drivers that were modified from those on locomotives. They had reinforced bows constructed of heavy beams and iron plates the internal steam heating system kept the crew warm and in the arctic conditions and the iron wells that allowed the propellers and rudders to be drawn into the hull to protect them from damage by the ice the ship's libraries were said to carry over a thousand books the crew was supplied with three years worth of tinned food provisions They were considered warships of incredible strength and were said to be unstoppable. The lie detector determined that was a lie. So, the ships set sail from Green Height, England on May 19, 1845. The crew consisted of 110 men plus 24 officers. They went north for supplies uh, on the Orkney Islands and then to Greenland. Then... This is where I get to pause for your giggles. They go to Disco Island off the coast of Greenland. Now that is a place I can get behind. <laughs> I'm just taking... Uh, I'm, what did you do? A journal entry on the HMS Terror to Disco <laughs> Island. The that, Disco Island in Baffin Bay. That sounds like a bad B-movie. Like, that sounds like a movie <laughs> that would be on... Not even a B-movie. That sounds like a movie that would be on, like, Mystery Science Theater. Yeah, like, absolutely. HMS Terror to Disco Island. <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing it. Thanks. <laughs> so... They set sail to survey the final 500 kilometers of the coast and hopefully discover this Northwest Passage. Two ships and the 129 men still on board were never seen again by Europeans. Okay. Because we don't like to talk about those native people who saw them, of course. So five of the men were sent back when they got to Disco Island because... They were invalided or ill for whatever reason. So they didn't, those were the only five survivors. <laughs> uh, but the other men uh, were never seen again. Wow. So I told you, Lady Franklin, uh, Lady Jane, amazing, amazing woman. Before we get into the what happened, I want to tell you why she's the best. Okay. In 1947, she's concerned about the expedition. 
There's been no news, no letters. He said he'd be back in two years. He's not here yet. One naval officer volunteered to lead a search party, but the Admiralty declined, saying they had faith in Franklin's abilities. It's not uncommon to not hear from an expedition for two years. But they did offer a reward to any whalers who might be able to give them information on the progress of the two ships. A two, or I'm sorry, a 20,000 pound reward. By that autumn, though, the Admiralty finally was like, um, where are they? And sent a search party. John Richardson, not the comedian, but the explorer, was a friend of Franklin's and with a group from the Hudson's Bay Company searched down the Mackenzie River to Coronation Gulf in the summer of 1848. They didn't find anything. No sign of the ships or their crew. Jane, meanwhile was writing letters to the President of the United States, James K. Polk, and the Russian Tsar, Nicholas I, requesting their aid in the search. She offers an even larger reward than the Admiralty to any whalers who might have seen the expedition. She even made plans to purchase her own ship, outfit it with a crew, commission the expedition, and find her husband. Wow. That's dedication. A whaler did come forward and claimed that the Inuit people had spoken of ships frozen in the channel south of Lancaster Sound, but nothing was found there. Mm. Another search was conducted by the Admiralty, finally, in 1850. This would have been five winters into this expedition in Arctic conditions. No one expected to find any survivors. Yeah. But... Private expeditions joined the search and finally found something. On Beachy Island, again, not at all Beachy, <laughs> there were... Beachy, a name, not Beachy, the <laughs> adverb. This is like a Greenland discovered in ice situation. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they found remains of the 1845-1846 winter camp. Among these camp remains, they also discovered graves of three men. John Hartnell, John Torrington, and William Brain. Hartnell and Torrington were buried in January, Brain in April. Those graves are still there today, along with a fourth headstone that marks the grave of Thomas Morgan, a sailor who came in a search party uh, later and died at the camp. Wow. Jane then contacts Hudson officer William Kennedy, and he, along with Lieutenant Joseph René Bellot of the French Navy, um, agree to search and set out. Uh, and sorry, agree to search and set out in the summer of 1851. They found exactly nothing. <laughs> no signs of the ship, nor any other camps. Because of Jane, the Admiralty searched for six years she was able to gain sympathy from the public for the plight of her husband and his crew the admiralty finally sent their last search in 1852 but it wasn't until 1854 when scottish explorer uh, john ray he was surveying the boothia peninsula and was told by inuit hunters um the ships got stuck in the ice and so the men headed off on foot, eventually fell victim to starvation and the cold. The hunters also told him that some of the men had resorted to cannibalism. In January of 1854... I mean, you do what you gotta do. Like... The... There's... 
I will get to that because there's definitely a reason and I, I get what they're saying, but there's definitely a reason why the Admiralty was so adamantly against listening to that um, testimony. In 1854, they declare finally that all the members of the expedition were assumed dead. But Jane was not having it. She was enraged. (laughs) She bought a boat. She hired Leopold McClintock, an experienced Royal Navy captain, to captain it. In 1959, McClintock came across a group of Inuit who had items belonging to the men of the missing ships and even purchased a set of silverware engraved with Franklin's initials. He was told of the site of the wreck. And when they arrived, they found the remains of a man in a steward's uniform, a 28-foot sledge boat, and it was filled with... I want you to prepare yourself for what I'm about to tell you. This boat was filled with clothing, 40 pounds of chocolate, and two skeletons. What way to go? (laughs) The items that they found were in good shape, but no one mentioned anything about food aside from the 40 pounds of chocolate. There were books, rugs, slippers. Why were they bringing these items and not food and fuel? So the party finally finds a campsite not too far away uh, with notes written by the uh, captain of the Erebus, James Fitzjames, which is still fun to say. April 25th, 1848, HM ships Terror and Erebus were deserted on the 22nd of April 5th. Oh, I'm sorry. No, (laughs) on the 22nd of April, five leagues north-northwest of this. His notes say, April 25th, 1848, HM ships Terror and Erebus were deserted on the 22nd of April, five leagues north-northwest of this, having been beset since the 12th of September, 1846. They'd been stuck in ice for two years. Uh, He goes on to say the officers and crews consisting of 105 souls under the command of Captain F.R.M. Crozier landed here in latitude 69 degrees, 37, 42 north, longitude 841 west. Sir John Franklin died on the 11th of June, 1847, and the total loss by deaths in the expedition has been to this date nine officers and 15 men. So they read this, and then they see in the corner there's also a frantic postscript written in Crozier's handwriting that said, And start on tomorrow the 26th for Baxfish River. The Bax River was 200 miles away to the south. And the nearest Hudson's Bay Company post where they would actually be able to find help was 800 miles beyond that. From what I read, they would have been better off going back north along Lancaster Sound where they would have known search parties would come or at very least get back to Beachy Island where they had left huge amounts of food and fuel. Some people think he went uh, south because they had been previously explored lands and they knew there was decent hunting area there so they could reprovision and be able to eat fresh food. Others think it was because he wanted to complete the mission because that's what soldiers do, but you can't complete a mission if you're dead. So 
Well, anyway, I'm getting off track because we're going to get to those theories in just a minute. I had to drink some water. Yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> Talking a lot. Look, I went from nine sentences in my first Canada episode to nine pages. <laughs> the Mahaha, re- uh, you know, redemption moment here. <laughs> so <laughs> the search expedition returns to England. Franklin's fate had been discovered. McClintock was knighted for his efforts. It was Lady Jane's expedition that succeeded where 40 others had failed. She continued to work to heal her husband's image, even after she knew he died, touting him as the discoverer of the Northwest Passage. She changed the game, essentially. Suddenly, you didn't have to live to tell someone that you'd found something to be considered the one who found it. He died early enough that he could avoid any messy cannibalism business, but late enough that she could still say that he was successful. Despite the fact that a Norwegian man, Roald Amundsen, was the first to truly travel through the Northwest Passage in 1906, it took him three years, by the way, uh, there's a statue of Franklin in London because of her. She continued to search for that lost expedition until she died. She was buried in a catacomb with an empty space beside her, believing that one day he would be returned to her side. Amazing lady. Yeah, like, get you a lady like Jane, man. (laughs) Get you a Lady Jane. Okay. So, exciting news. Two ships finally discovered more than a century later. Wow. The Erebus is discovered in 2014, and the Terror was found in 2016 in pristine condition. But what happened to Crozier, Fitz, James, and the rest of the men remains to be one of the greatest Arctic mysteries to this day. The ships were not found where the notes Fitz James wrote indicated, which suggests the men might have reboarded the ships and then deserted them a second time after sailing on for a bit. This would match with some of the Inuit oral histories that were previously balked at. Through various artifacts, archaeological finds, and human remains, the timeline has been pieced together as best as it could be. There are a lot of conflicting theories on what happened to this expedition, and there's no definitive answer. Even if the remaining crew had been rescued in 1848 when the letter was written, the expedition had already been uh, already had a record-breaking number of deaths in marine exploration. Why were these losses so heavy? So what would you like to do first, speculate wildly or hear the theories? Let's hear the theories. Okay. Do you want me to just list them or do you want me to go into detail and then like, do you want me to list them and then you can like guess which one you like? (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So theory one is lead poisoning. Theory two is uh, illness, botulism, tuberculosis, pneumonia, that sort of thing. Makes sense. Also boring. Theory, uh, Theory three, freezing. Four, starvation, uh, dehydration. And theory five is Addison's disease. Oddly specific. Yes. What is Addison's disease? Uh, Addison's disease is a uh, disease in which the body's adrenal glands fail to produce enough uh, 
cortisol hormone. <laughs> Which does... Weight loss, low blood pressure, nausea, vomiting, darkening of the skin. I was hoping for, like, Yeti's attack. Like, Well, aliens. interestingly enough, there's a story, I think it's Stephen King, The Terror, and it's basically like, it was a Wendigo. Yeah, that'd be cool. So, like, that's that's like what the people want it to be but that's not what the science says well yeah but science boring we're here to speculate wildly so is it aliens or a wendigo i'm gonna say it's a wendigo what about an alien wendigo i mean that could be it too wendigo alien wendigian alindigo alindigo that's what we're calling the episode Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to start with theory one, lead poisoning, because that's the most researched. Okay. Uh, in the eight- 1980s, sorry, 1980s, three bodies that were left on Beachy Island were exhumed and researched. All three of the bodies had unusually high levels of lead, like a hundred times higher than the acceptable limit of lead. Lead poisoning and these types of high levels are known to cause excruciating pain, muscle paralysis, wasting away, neuroses, disorientation, and inflammation of the nerves and brain. So these symptoms might not explain why, or might explain why they left the ships on their thousand mile trek to the south, why they left food and water behind on board, and instead took bizarre items like curtain rods, a writing desk, and 40 pounds of chocolate. Hey, travel will keep you around for a little bit until you need vitamins. (laughs) I mean, yes. I mean, at least there's calories in it. The curtain rods and writing desk, though, are a little bizarre. Well, yeah. I was just defending the chocolate. (laughs) So the evidence for this is that the company was to provide three years worth of canned food. Uh, Those, that company was picked very short notice. Processing may have been rushed, and the lead soldering on the cans may have been sloppily done. I just imagine instead of filling the cans with food, they just, just filled, filled it with lead. lead. <laughs> Essentially, yes. In fact, the cans they found on Beachy Island were discovered with large globs of lead soldering attached. Ew. Food scientist Dr. Uh, Dr. Sorry. Dr. Keith Ferrer commented on a History Channel documentary on the expedition that there isn't anything extraordinary about finding lead in bones of people during these times. He said that lead is, that is ingested, 90% of that is excreted. But of the 10% left, half of that goes directly to your bones. And from there, it doesn't really go anywhere. He believes that even if the lead had gotten into the cans, that it would not have contaminated the food because it would have been electrochemically attracted to the tin and iron and not the contents. He said that the contents of the tin uh, food was not enough to actually poison the men. Now, this may be true, but even if that is the case, they were also likely poisoned by their water supply. I told you these were state-of-the-art ships, they had a desalination filtration system on board. And guess what those pipes were made out of? Just guess. Lead. That you'll get it wrong. 
Oh, damn, you got it. Well, humans <laughs> had been consuming water from lead pipes for years and survived. And this is no ordinary situation. Lead is most easily absorbed by water when it is newly distilled and soft. Strike one. Lead is more easily absorbed by water when the pipes are new and there is no sufficient layer of protective scaling on the inside. Strike two. And lead is more absorbed by water when it is heated. Strike three, you did. So while this might not have been a died of lead poisoning situation, it might have affected their brains and thus led them to some pretty ratchet conclusions like, well, let's bring 40 pounds of chocolate and a writing desk for the walk a thousand miles south. Uh, the illness theory, theory two, botulism, tuberculosis, pneumonia, etc. I mentioned that the three men on Beachy had been exhumed. Due to the cold, these bodies were in impeccable condition. Look it up. I'll wait. It is insane. Okay. <laughs> they had B E E C H E Y. Island corpses. Good deal. They are terrifyingly intact. Oh. Yep. So many teeth. Yep. <laughs> like their lips look super leathery, but other than that, I mean, you don't see corpses in that great a condition these days. Yeah, I mean, like they're they're definitely dead. Like, yeah, they're but well preserved dead. Yeah. So, while they had high levels of iron in their bones. Their cause of death was actually considered to be pneumonia caused by tuberculosis. However, these died, these men died early in the expedition, so the theory is fiercely debated that the entire crew died of tuberculosis slash pneumonia. Along with the bad canned food theory, is a suggestion that in the rush to get this food to the expedition, the contents were not cooked to a safe temperature before canning to preserve and were potentially contaminated with botulism. With the kinds of foods canned within the time frame they had, there was a pretty high risk of foodborne illness. Dr. Ferrer, however, has opinions on this as well. He is apparently the leading expert on 19th century canning techniques, and I'm not making that up. He, the fact that that's a position is hilarious so yeah he says there would have been a gas production in the cans and a smell so when they opened them they would have been like this is bad food let's not eat this forensic testing has been done on the cans and they say there was no sign of botulism within that scurvy is another theory uh three men were lacking or these men were lacking fresh fruits and veggies meats they spent three winters in the ice that was fairly common for sailors. So, could have, could have been scurvy. Not exciting. Sailor shit. Theory number three. Freezing to death. These men were not dressed for success. That old saying, dress for the job you want? Well, these men wanted to be sailors. They did not dress to drag a sledge boat along the snow and ice. The idea that they would have been... Um, sweating profusely in their wool clothes and from the hard labor uh, they were without proper insulation prone to hypothermia yeah your I mean, feet get sweaty just looking at like even i'm sure they would have taken like out exterior clothing and stuff off of these bodies before they buried them yeah like just looking at them i'm like yeah that's not warm 
you're not dressed for this. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you think Lieutenant Dan, he says, take care of your feet. If your feet get sweaty or you slip and you get water in your boots, you get frostbite and then you're cutting your feet off. In that documentary, I gotta tell you this. In that documentary, there's this guy, and he's some expert on oh shit, he's some expert on something, right? And so he's got his arms crossed the entire time he's talking, and he goes, "You know, I was on an Arctic exploration a few years back, and I got frostbite in the tips of my fingers." And uh, he pulls his fucking hand out, and you see, like, they're like his tips of his fingers are cut off and you think oh that's you know that's so unfortunate until he starts explaining that oh they got really leathery and like talons and so the other day i just took a saw and cut them off and the tips of my fingers are in that drawer over there what the fuck i'd be like thanks for the interview i'm gonna go now i'm gonna fuck off now mr cuts off his own fingers and he's just showing you the nubbins of his little fingies. Oh, it was the weirdest shit. Okay. I, I just, I that kinda, part I needed to add. I kind of want to watch it, and I kind of don't at the same time. <laughs> well, I'll find it. I'll get to the part where he says that, and I'll send it to you, and you can choose to do what you want with it. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I was sitting there like, what the fuck is happening right now? Okay, so theory number four, starvation dehydration. Fairly simple. I mentioned the Inuit had reported cannibalism, but the English were not about it. They were like, uh, no. Uh, so Charles Dickens even wrote articles questioning the Inuit accounts that fueled very public debate. No one wanted to believe this because no one wanted to think ill of these basically celebrities. Yeah. Well, and you don't um, want to think ill of the dead. Like, you don't want to think that they had to get to that point, but... Yeah. And cannibalism, even in the face of starvation, suggested at that time, a lack of morality, and the Royal Navy simply could not have that stigma because they wanted to continue to try to find the Northwest Passage. They couldn't have people thinking poorly of their political schemes... Or else they wouldn't have the support and people wouldn't want to join the Navy, etc. However, in 1993, bones were found and examined. There were cut marks on the bones that were clearly those of butchery. So someone cut off someone else's fingies? Maybe. Because they got... With a saw. And then he kept the tips in the drawer over there. Because they got talent in life. (laughs) About a quarter of the bones that they found had these cuts on them, and others seemed to have been cracked open and boiled to extract marrow. Now, there are some people who think that the cut marks mean that they were attacked, but anthropologist Anne Keenlyside disagrees. She remarks that in the instances of cannibalism, they are generally, uh, sorry, I skipped a line. She remarks that aside from the face, the hands and feet are the most recognizably human parts of our body, and that in instances of cannibalism, they are generally consumed last. And for her, the fact that there are cut marks on hands and feet mean that these men were that desperate. However, 
naval historian Lieutenant Ernie Coleman of the Royal Navy, argues that hands are also the most likely to be injured in defensive wounds. That's true. That is heated debate right there. Hands and arms, yeah. So, I think they probably ate each other because that's what you do when you're starving to death. But they also could have been hurt in an attack. Who knows? All right. Last one. Theory 5, Addison's disease. On August 22nd, 2017, Smithsonian Magazine published an article called A Dentist Weighs In on What Really Doomed the Franklin Expedition. Not what you expect to read. No. (laughs) This article explores the theory of Dr. Russell Teichman, a Canadian dental professor at the University of Michigan, with a deep love of history. He recalls one of the Inuit testimonies given to an American explorer, Frederick Schwachta, which is fun to say, uh, around 1879, that 40 years prior, they had seen emaciated men dragging boats with mouths that looked dry and black. Teichmann decided to cross-reference the various symptoms between lead poisoning and scurvy, which can also blacken the mouth, He poured over 1,700 medical studies, and one thing kept popping up. Addison's disease. Like I said, it's a rare disorder. Uh, Adrenal glands fail. Um, What'd I say? Weight loss, blood pressure, nausea, vomiting. According to the article, if left untreated, Addison's can cause a slow death from infection or adrenal failure. And in the 19th century, it was really hard to diagnose. Now, Teichmann himself cautions that this is at best an educated guess, but there is some evidence that in those times, and even today in some lesser developed countries, a common cause for Addison's is tuberculosis, which they found on the bodies at Beachy Island. There are also some who think it was not just one thing but a combination of a number of these theories that may have happened. Uh, You consider that they are in the extremes of the inhospitable icy desert. There are no logbooks or written records aside from the Fitch James notes that were recovered. And there's no telling if we will ever know with 100% certainty what happened to the remaining 105 men of the Erebus and Terror. Psychics have been consulted. Of course they have. (laughs) Of course. Um, But in an underwater survey of the wrecks, Parks Canada team were able to use a fancy camera majig to look into the terror in August of 2019. They discovered that almost all of the ship's items were not only intact and in pristine condition, but there is even hope that some of the written records on board may be readable due to the cold of the Arctic waters and the protective sediment that formed around the wreckage. As far as I can tell, none of those artifacts have been recovered yet, and so this almost poses another mystery. I told you that these boats were not found where Fitzjames said they were. Um, so, from the condition it was found in, experts believe the ship may have been fully operational when it was abandoned. The photos from inside the terror show that it was uh, like all the sliding cabin doors were ajar as if people were looking for anybody on board while the ship sank. 
But as far as we know, that was not the case. If you are interested in seeing the inside of the ship, you can find Parks Canada Guided Tour Inside HMS Terror on YouTube. It is genuinely fascinating. But, as far as we know, there is no 100% answer. And we are still waiting to learn what happened. And that's what I got. Well, that's a lot of information. It's really interesting. I'm sorry. What? Did I overwhelm you? No. No, I'm just disappointed that there wasn't any, like, Wendigos did it, or Aliens did it, or... Or... I don't know. There was a... Crazy, because one of them became a psychic and started talking to ghosts, and then the ghost made them murder everybody. You know, I don't know. Yeah, or like, uh, you know... It's not, like I said, Big it was government it's, conspiracy. I put it in between the Donner Party and the Diablo Pass because you're still going, why the fuck did this happen? But they did eat each other. We know that that happened. Yeah, there's no or way. We think that that happened. There's no way that they didn't eat each other. I mean, yes. Like, I'm sorry. I love you. If we're ever in a situation where we're starving to death, if you die before me, I'm going to eat you. I'm going to eat you. you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm gonna kill you. I don't think I'll get that bad. But like, if I mean, you, you might. Uh, maybe I don't think I would. But who knows? But going with the idea that I wouldn't intentionally kill someone. If you were to die in front of me and I was starving, I'm going to eat you. Like, <laughs> deal with there's it. There's not. I, there's. There's a chance. I feel like you would want me to at that point. Oh yeah. Like if there's a chance that I could maybe survive and like get out and tell your story, you know, and like save myself, or would you rather me bury the body that you're no longer using or inhabiting in any fucking way? Nope. <laughs> and not then, me. you know, like die also shortly after. Like. Yep. I'll take something Died. to remember you by. I'll take a lock oh, of your thanks. hair or something. You could take like a like a phalange. <laughs> a fingy. Take a fingy. You keep it in the drawer over there. <laughs> I seriously, it's called Arctic Tomb, and if you can Google it, it's on it's on the YouTube. It was horrifying to watch <laughs> and amazing, and I just kept watching and going, "What is happening?" That was the most exciting part of my story, and I apologize for that. <laughs> no, it was good. I enjoyed it. I just like that there's a, I presume, a running gag that is about to happen of us. <laughs> I got my fingers in a drawer over there. <laughs> yeah, talking about cutting off fingies. Just the tip. Just the tip. Tip of the fingy. <laughs> Oh, man. That's going to be a long-ass episode. Yep. <laughs> Not sorry. No. Thanks. <laughs> like Not sorry at all. Almost an hour and 40 minutes. Well, with that, thanks for joining us today as we discuss the strange and unusual in Canada. Uh, next week, we'll be heading south to our home of the U.S. of A., we hope that you'll reach out to us with your own experiences. We want your stories, your questions, and your feedback. Send us an email at strangeunusualpodcast at gmail.com. If you're sending a story, we just ask that you put listener story in the subject line so we can sort through those a little more easily. Do you know someone who cut off their fingies and put them in a drawer? I want to know. 
I want to know if you have your fingers in a drawer. Or anyone else's fingers in a drawer, for that matter. Uh, Did you feed them to pigs? Yeah. Please don't tell me that. Or tell me that so I can tell the police. (laughs) Tell me that with your name, address. (laughs) And then I can be on the forensic files. (laughs) Well, me and my friend host this podcast, so we got this strange email. (laughs) What? One of the best ones, I, I don't remember what episode was it, but it was like a fingerprint or something. And it pans to this guy and he just goes, and what we found was, it was a match. <laughs> and I was like, that was so fucking dramatic. No, Why? Elise and I make fun of this all the time. There is an episode of Forensic Files that we've watched because we've watched all of them on Netflix like at least twice at this point. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, I fall asleep to Forensic Files. And so we're watching it. And it's just this dramatic. It's just like he was sitting in a food court eating a dessert known as a blizzard. <laughs> what? There's so, they're so extra on that show. It's just like it's like a kid who needs like a few extra words in their paper. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the dessert that he was eating is known as a blizzard. <laughs> yes. Oh man. Um, anyway, you can <laughs> you can find us on Instagram at strange underscore unusual underscore podcast or our personal accounts Roy Rampage and Calamity Casey where we post the weird shit in our personal lives. You can find us on Twitter at underscore strange unusual at Calamity Casey and at Roy Rampage. We're also on Facebook. Just search the Strange and Unusual podcast. We also have a Patreon that we're terribly neglecting right now, but a great way to get us more enticed to put more content on there is to become a Patreon subscriber. Absolutely. Um, we were doing episode uh, bonus episodes that should not show up on <laughs> the main line of our episodes. Um, as well as polls for what we will be doing next. Um, our deities episodes have been put to a vote on there, as well as hopefully future content. Um, maybe so we've chatted a little bit about doing like movie reviews or like talking about movies, talking about pop culture that we enjoy as well. So if you're interested in hearing us talk more than you already listen to us talk, patreon.com slash strange unusual that's right and please as always if you can donate great if you can't please rate review and subscribe share us with your friends and anyone you think may enjoy the content that we're putting out we really appreciate that because i do know you know we understand in these the dark days of the rona and now (laughs) protests and yeah I don't know, like, murdered hornets and whatever else happens in the summer. That... Cannibalistic rats. Oh, God. Well, I mean, cannibalistic rats, that'd be okay. Well, no, that's really happening. There's yeah. overly aggressive rats. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of um, wildlife that's been accustomed to humans helping feed them that now don't have that food. Yep. Um, anyway um and if you leave us a review if you would like us to well if you 
specifically if you don't want us to, you can tell <laughs> us not to. Um, but we will read them on air, just like I am about to read a five-star review we have from Katie is Just Okay. <laughs> Hi, Katie. <laughs> I hope you're more than okay today. I love this podcast because not only is it informative from all the research that they do, but it also is fun to hear the crazy things that they say. <laughs> it's a nice change from the typical stuffy and monotone podcasts. I love their dynamic and I learn a lot every time I listen. So if you want to join Katie is just okay. And one nerdy <laughs> nurse and MDK dragon seven, seven, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or if you left us a review on another venue, send us an email and let us know, because this is the only one that I can actively check. So if there's another one out there on another avenue of reviews that I don't know about, send me an email, or I can go check it out, or case, send us an email, Yeah, I'm, I'm and available, so. <laughs> we'll go and check it out and read it on the podcast if you would like us to. If you don't, probably should put that in the review. Consent is important. <laughs> but that is all we have. We're going to be going back to the United States um, next week for maybe a themed episode. We don't know yet. We're still kind of chatting about a potentially themed episode. So we hope to see you, hear you, have you guys listen to us. <laughs> You're not going to do either of those things. <laughs> They're going to listen to us. I, I closed with we the right one. <laughs> Okay, there you go. See, here, listen, talk. <laughs> <laughs> we want to talk to you again real soon. We want you to hear us in our obnoxious voices. Join us again next week as we live in the piggy palace good time society <laughs> man powered pumps. Ew. Man pumping. Ew. <laughs> I want to All talk right, we about should... the man pumping in <laughs> Piggy Pals Good Time Society. We should probably say goodbye so you could watch it. Okay. <laughs> say bye with all of our fingies. Okay. None of them, None are, of them are in drawers. <laughs> thanks again. Katie is just okay. Yeah, thanks again so much. Sorry, you're and, on kind uh, of a bummer episode. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> Love you. <laughs> Have all a- of our episodes are kind of bummer episodes. No, not all of them. Just most of it's them. Just most of them. The great our majority. very first episode wasn't that much of a bummer. No, but our second one definitely was. Oh, it. Yeah, it was. That was. That was okay. Goodbye. <laughs>